Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University. Now your hosts, Doug Sweeney and Kristen Padilla. Welcome to the Beeson Podcast. I am your host, Doug Sweeney, here with my co-host, Kristen Padilla, and we are glad to be back with you this week as we continue to celebrate our African-American Ministry Emphasis Month. Before we get underway, let me remind you that our fall 2021 application deadline is March 1st. So if you or someone you know is interested in Beeson, we would love to be in touch. Please reach out to our admissions office and help us spread the word. You can learn more on our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Now, Kristen, would you please introduce today's distinguished guest? I will. Hello, everyone. We have Dr. Lark Ball with us on the show today. She is the music ministry director at White Rock Baptist Church in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. She is a two-time Beeson graduate, having earned a joint degree, an MDiv degree, and a Master of Church Music degree at Sanford, as well as a D-Men, which we're going to ask her about today on the show. Um, Dr. Ball, thank you for coming on the show today. We're so glad to have you. It is absolutely my pleasure. Well, we always like to begin these conversations by allowing our guests to share a little bit more personal information. Um, so where are you from, Dr. Ball, and um, how did you come to faith in Jesus Christ? I am originally from Baltimore, Maryland. Well, I was born in Annapolis, but raised in Baltimore. My father and my mother carried me across the threshold of my home church, the Timothy Baptist Church in Baltimore, pastored at that time by the late Dr. William T. Mayo. I guess I was about maybe a year and a half, two, two years maybe. And from there on in, I've been at that church. My father became the pastor. His name is James L. Ball. He was the pastor for 47 years. And uh, if you are a pastor's child, then the mere fact that they are a pastor means you take music lessons. It doesn't matter whether it's keyboard or voice or instrumental or so forth, you are going to take music lessons. And when my father offered it, I didn't back up. But I was not, playing for the church was not the first thing in my mind. Again, since you have already made musician in the family, there isn't very much you can say to uh, get out of the position. So uh, when he offered me the position, I said, okay, I'll do a little bit and I'll try here and I'll try there. And he said, well, what if we pay you $25 a month? And at 12 years old, when I started, $25 a month is pretty good pay. So I got into it little bit by little bit. I stayed at the church. I grew up there. I, I knew all of my friends there, all of my family friends were at the church. And to be a Christian was just something that you just did. I, I guess I came to Christianity by osmosis because I didn't know anything else. I really didn't know any other social life as such. But in playing for the church, I got to have a little more experience, a little more. I came up under some wonderful musicians. I call their names out of respect because most of them are, are gone from the scene now. I learned first under Miss Aretha Mayo, and Miss Gladys Davis was the organist. And Mr. James Peterson was the organist and choir director. And Mr. Marcus Williams, praise God, is still with us. Good friend. I came up just following in their footsteps. The, the, the idea was, 
The idea I had was you teach the choir music, you play the music, you play the hymns for the church or the service. And that's what you did. I had no clue as to the intricacies of planning a worship service, including music to enhance the worship itself. But I uh, carried on until one day we didn't have a musician and everybody turned to me and said, well, looks like you're going to be the minister of music. And I said, oh, yeah, uh, huh? Uh, excuse me? And again, I had no clue, had no idea. I only had one aspect of music ministry that was to teach the choir. But my father was a regular attending of the Hampton Ministers Conference in Hampton University. And one year he says, you know, you need to come down with me and see what goes on. So this was 1980. 1980 was my first time at Hampton. And my father kept saying, I want you to meet Dr. Flax. Dr. Flax, he's the director there. You need to get to see him. You need to get to know him. And my first year there was the year that he passed away. So I missed him. But I got to meet his protege, Roland Carter, and my experience with him became more, I guess, a mentor type because we really became good friends from there on in and others. I came up watching Philip McIntyre direct and I was, I think the word is gobsmacked. I had no clue as to the depth of music that could be achieved, the perfection in music that could be achieved until you worked at it. That was a defining time for me. And I attribute the Hampton Conference as really setting me on the path of giving me the example, setting in front of me what ministry and music and what ministry as a whole was supposed to be. Because in those early years, the conference itself was limited to pastors and music ministers. So you couldn't be a part of the choir unless you could read music. And every Body just wasn't invited or wasn't supposed to be down at Hampton for the ministers conference because there were some things that ministers were supposed to say to ministers, pastors were supposed to talk to pastors, and not for the general ear of the congregation. And I sat under wonderful preachers, trailblazers is the best I can I can call. I came up under Donald Parson and James Ford, Manuel Scott, A. Lewis Patterson, Harold Williams, Bill Jones, and of course, of course, the Prince of Preachers, Gardner Taylor. I sat in such a place where I could look right down their throats. And for as many years as I've been down there, there are a couple of instances where the word just seems to germinate, just takes root. And no matter what you do, it influences everything that you do. And I remember A. Lewis Patterson speaking to the ministers about counting the cost. And he related an experience with his son because his son was an asthmatic. He described him as a brittle asthmatic. And he told times when he would take his son to the hospital. And then once he was discharged, they'd all be on the way home and then have to turn it back and take him right back because his asthma attack was so severe. This is his son and he has special needs and he's not going to count the cost of the needs. He's going to meet the needs. And he looked out over the congregation at that time and just told us that you have to identify the need. And then you have to meet the need and you don't count costs. You meet the need and you shut up. And that made such an impression on me that I never forgot that. And that has influenced almost everything I've been able to do. Whatever the need is, my aim is to meet the need and shut up. Just do it. Just mm. do it.
Dr. Ball, you said something a couple of minutes ago that made me think, I got to get you to back up just for one more minute and talk a little bit about the chronology of your childhood ministry at the church. Mm -hmm. Did you say you started when you were 12 years old? I started playing for the service at 12 years old. Yes. All right. So, so what did your teenage years look like? At, at 12 years old, your dad, I guess, is paying you mm -hmm. $25 a month to play. And then at a certain point, when you're still a teenager, you became the director of music at your church. I mean, you really got some great experience as a girl in music ministry. Yes, very much so. But again, I'm at my home church, so this is what I was going to do. But again, I'm working under musicians who are doing the bulk of the work. So in my early teenage years, it was a little dicey because how can you teach music to an older person who looks at you and says, you know, you, you can't tell me how to sing. I, I remember when you came here, I helped diaper you. Right. You know, seriously? And then my friends, you can't really say very, very much to them because they only had, they had their own ideas as to what should be and how this goes. And there was a generation in our church that was very musical. All of the kids were singing and we were in different choirs and at all city and city choirs at school and community choirs here and there. Everybody was singing. So if I was trying to teach a song and I didn't do it exactly right, then they knew, you know, uh-uh, you got to go back. That's not right. That's not right. Okay. How about we can't sing as high as that person is. You'll never make that note and keep things in order. You got to bring it down. And so there were, there, there were issues. There were issues. And I have to credit my father because he, he realized that I was never going to be able to grow, I guess, as easily as I could as long as I was home. And he literally shoved me out the door and said, okay, you need to go start playing in another situation, another circumstance. And that's how he got me to play in other churches. I played at the Jones Tabernacle Baptist Church in Baltimore for a number of years. Then when I finally decided to move beyond, I moved down to Savannah, Georgia. And this is over a course of 20 years or more, you know, that these kind of changes had to come about. In Savannah, I was at the First African Baptist Church of Savannah. The pastor there is uh, Reverend uh, Thurman Tillman. Again, even now, a very good friend and wonderful preacher. That is a historic but congregation as well. Very it famous. Is. It is. It is. It's, it's said to be the oldest Black Baptist church in the country. Now, there is some discussion that goes back and forth over that, but I had my time there. And again, they're very instrumental, very influential in all that I did. And I learned a lot. I learned this is how best to meet the need. You just don't pick up the baton and say, okay, you got to sing it this way. You know, bang, 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 bang. You no, know, that's not the way. There are ways to get around and so on. And I had to learn that because I came up as a child. So learning as an adult, it was an experience. Dr. Ball, I would love to get you to talk about what led you to Beeson Divinity School. You live up in the north, northeast, and then you come all the way south <laughs> yes, I did. to do a joint degree. So what brought you to Beeson? What was your experience like here? And um, how did your studies help shape the minister you became? As it turns out, it was in Savannah that I met a minister. His name was Alan Green. And we became good friends, but he moved from Savannah to Birmingham. 
and he was at the First Baptist Church in Fairfield. And he says, I need you to come down and do a week's workshop with my choir. And so I did. I did. In talking to him, I had already explained to him that I had really hoped at one point or other to go into full-time ministry. I wanted to study. I really needed to study. And he says, well, you know, there is a, there is Sanford University. They've got a church music program and you need to go and see if you like it, see if it'll work for you. And so I made an appointment with Dr. Paul Richardson and we talked and I liked what I was hearing. So I went back and I told my dad, I am going to be moving down to Birmingham. I need to go to school. And then in researching the school a little further, I realized that there was a dual degree that I could do it on both ends. I could have gotten just the church music degree and that, that would have sufficed. But I had already been well prepared for serious word. I really wanted to learn more as far as theology was concerned and more of the Bible and more church history. I was just finding all these things out. I said, well, this is the place. And so I picked up lock, stock and barrel and moved down to Birmingham. I appreciated the programs there, the classes. I don't know of a time when I was not supported in the most personal and spiritually uh, defining way, from Dr. George down to the general custodian at the time. It was fun to be there. I met wonderful people, people that I still keep in contact with. Beeson became a part of my maturation process. And I will give you this much. I came to Beeson at a time when I really needed to be able to define myself as a musician, a church musician, a minister of music, still having that identification concerns. And I finally had to let it be known that my my apprehension had another base, had another reason. And I, gosh, I can't even start it without telling the entire story because I was in Dr. Smith's preaching class. And I think everybody knows the story of the fishbowl and how he slices up his little biblical passages and you reach into the fishbowl and whatever you draw out, that's what you have to preach on. And believe me, when I saw the list of them, because he had always given us the preview of how many verses were already there. And I looked and I saw one in particular. I said, God, please don't ever let me. I I don't need that. I I don't want that. And I reached into the bowl. I was the first one reached into the bowl and I pulled out Judges 19. And I didn't want to preach that because that told the story of the concubine who had been had been forced out and used by the mob and her husband stepped over her dead body after she had been killed in his anger he had her body cut up and distributed among the tribes to show his displeasure i did not want that particular scripture because i am a survivor of domestic abuse and that Scripture resonated in a way I just did not want to do, but I'm so grateful that Dr. Smith worked with me and prayed with me, and I was able to do, to, to preach, preach that particular scripture, but it left a defining imprint to know that, okay, I can do this, and I don't have to live in the shadow of what happened to me so many years ago. I don't have to be defined by that. I can move ahead. And I I came to that realization at Beeson, and there were more, more than Dr. Smith, there was Dr. Outlaw, who is from Baltimore, and knows my father. She had preached at my home church, but so many others. 
uh, Dr. Wallace, all of them were so supportive of me. My time in Birmingham was not always that easy, but coming to Beeson was an oasis because I was so far away. And there was a time when I was really upset. And when I came to school, I was able to put that aside. And a couple of people, friends that I had, had cultivated there, were there to support and pray with me. And Dr. Wallace and Dr. George understood the situation. And they were fast, no hesitation. Let, let's, let's do what needs to be done. Let's, let's pray. And I was able to, again, be able to get past that. Beeson was just the oasis, mm-hmm. just That's an wonderful. oasis. I didn't worry about cultural differences or whether or not I was being perceived right or wrong or anything to that effect. I was just able to come and worship, sit in the chapel and worship, and continue on my studies and worship. That was my focus there. Everything else fell into place. Dr. Ball, I don't have to tell you that there aren't lots of music ministers these days who have completed Master of Divinity degrees at seminaries. And the seminary dean in me wants to ask you what difference your MDiv study here at Beeson has made in your music ministry. Would you recommend it to other people who are called to music ministry? I would most certainly. And I know the kind of study that I did is not easy to do because the time in which we live has so many distractions. But if one is committed, I go back to that line that I learned from A. Lewis Patterson. If you perceive a need, then you work to meet the need. Don't count costs because the cost will work out. When I decided I wanted to do full-time ministry, it was 10 years from my decision to the time I walked across the stage, 10 years. But I held to my my desire and I kept working at it until God saw the time for me to be able to do the kind of study that I wanted. What I've learned to do in ministry has been enhanced because I understand what the need is for a congregation in worship. And I learned that in study. It's not all just praise and worship and hallelujah. It's nice to be able to praise God all day long, but you have to leave the church. And when you leave the church, there is a responsibility as being his witnesses to live according to his word to the very best of our ability. It doesn't mean that we're going to get it all right. It doesn't mean we're going to be heading in the right direction at all times, but we make the effort. And in making that effort, you have to be able to, to support that need. And sometimes it's musically. A, a friend of mine said the pastor has one time to get the word across. He can preach until his socks are wet and the, the congregation will go home remembering a snippet, if that much. And for musicians, we have three or four times to get it right. With every song that we sing, we have the opportunity to instill a little deeper exactly what God is about, the true and authentic worship of a God that is not of our own limit, not of our own making. We have the opportunity to undergird and support and drive the drive it home again, the subject, the biblical lesson that the pastor is trying to get across. They will go home singing what we sang in service. 
before they will go home talking about what the pastor says. And for the minister of music, it is imperative that the music that we teach, the music that we give our choirs, I have our, lead our congregations in singing, it has to be theologically sound. It has to be biblically correct because music can make that kind of impression, that kind of a lasting impression. And the only way you're going to really know is to do that kind of in-depth study. Now, I will admit, I have not gone to my Greek as often as I should. But there are times and occasions when I pull out my Greek Bible and I can see, okay, well, maybe that's, that song is not saying exactly the right thing. And maybe this portion of the, of the service is not the appropriate place for this song. That's how I've been able to, to really work at enhancing my ministry because I'm determined that whatever I give the choir, it will not be wrong. It will not uh, be contrary to what my pastor is trying to teach, trying to instill in the people. I cannot be in opposition to that. I would by all means recommend anyone who has a desire to do music ministry to search out those opportunities where you can do some serious learning. Sometimes it's just auditing a class. I know Dr. Pounds still does the... He leads the Lay Academy, which is a, that's a the one. series of yeah. classes for people in the community. Yes, that's the one. There are those opportunities to do. There are conferences. There are workshops that can be done. And you have to be discerning. You have to really be discerning. Everybody who does a workshop in music ministry does not necessarily promote the right thing or the same thing. Sometimes our focus, our, our attention is set askew. We're looking at performance. And it's not to say that you should not do the very best that you can and work so hard to make sure that your presentation is as perfect as it possibly can. But that's not the be all and end all of it. I tell my choir members all the time, you do the work and the Lord will filter out all the mistakes. You know, we, we're, we're bound to make mistakes. But he can clean it up such that they hear you praising and teaching and admonishing and encouraging through music, and you are reaching them. They're not wondering why the altos missed that cue, you know, or the tenors came in too fast, or the basses aren't singing the basses, they're singing the melody. They don't hear that. They hear what they need to hear. If our attention is set on perfection, we can do as much damage being perfect in our musical presentation, more so than the little choir that can barely keep a tune or barely sing in two parts. But their thought, their, their heart, and the message that they are, they are giving, not only in the music, but in their presentation, in their determination to give God the very best that they have, you know, makes that much more of an impression and an impact in the lives of our congregation. I will always remember a little lady at my church. She was from one of the islands, and she was supposed to sing a solo. She asked to sing this one solo, and she sang, Jesus, oh, what a wonderful child, in seven different keys. I mean, she never hit the key, but she brought the church to tears because she was trying to do her best. She was giving God all that she had. And because she was from the island, she was very uh, animated 
in her presentation and we just got right with her and we kind of helped her out so forth. But I, I, honestly, if she's singing in seven keys, she's singing in 12. But she made more of an impression than the most accomplished soloist could come in and sing the same song and then expect to be paid. That's a nice segue into the question I wanted to ask you, Dr. Ball. I mentioned that you serve at White Rock Baptist Church, and Mm -hmm. I believe you told me that you're in your 20th year at this church. So how did did you get to this church? Um, What has your experience been like? And then for, you know, our listeners who are not part of an African-American church, I would love for you to talk about just the rich heritage, the wonderful tradition of Mm. music, especially in the worship service in an African-American church. Oh, well... I am at the White Rock Baptist Church, and I, I cannot believe it is it is 20 years. I came to uh, White Rock through another friend. Oh, wonderful friend, dear, very dear friend, served as my mentor for my doctorate work, Dr. Wendell Babson. He's the pastor of the Monumental Baptist Church in Philadelphia. And he recommended me just before I came down to Beeson. I interviewed with my pastor, Dr. William Shaw, and... I told him I've already made my plans to go study, you know. Uh, and I, I told him, I says, well, I'm, I'm going down to Beeson Divinity School, and it's going to be about four years, three or four years before I'll be ready. And uh, the pastor told me, says, well, you go on to school, and we will wait. And they waited. So they, I came in. And it has been an experience. It has been a wonderful experience. It has been challenging. There is so much difference between where am I in Baltimore and Philadelphia, which is 90 miles away. They're almost like two different countries, almost, because culturally speaking, the experience in church is so vastly different, just like it is from Baltimore to Birmingham. You know, everybody everybody has their their culture, their way of uh, worshiping and you just have to kind of filter in and not throw the baby out with the bathwater. Yeah, to respect their history. And that's what I what I've been really trying to do. I think I I think White Rock is the only church that I have ever been in where they pick up the hymn book. We still have hymn books and you could turn to it, whatever the hymn was and the congregation would sing in four-part harmony. That that was their tradition. They had a very strong, strong hymnology. And the pastor's desire was to have all phases of music, all genres of music uh, represented. So the spirituals, the anthems, the hymns, the gospel. And I came in with an addendum, I think, to the gospel because gospel is always changing, always evolving as time goes on. And they want it to keep up to an extent. But again, I'm looking at what is said in the songs. How are they? Do they meet the personality of this congregation? And I'm, I'm really being judicious in selecting what pieces are appropriate for this congregation. And I think it's really important that we be mindful that there are some things that are better said through an anthem than through a gospel. There are some sentiments that can ex- be expressed only through the depth of poetry in a hymn than 
can be projected in a praise song. It just does not meet the need because sometimes we need to say more than eight bars will give us. In our church, we had that tradition where we could sing a hymn, we could sing a spiritual, we could sing an old gospel. And I, when I was playing the organ, I loved when we got the right hymn and I knew I was in the right mode and they were right along with me, just stop the music, let the congregation sing. And they would do it, they would do it. And by that time, I said, I don't need to play, you know, okay, I'll come back. But they had that tradition and it's always been my desire to uphold it. So I look at introducing new hymns, new songs. Again, I'm trying to determine the, the appropriateness for this congregation. My congregation over the years, if I've been there 20 years, you can see, you can imagine how the congregation has aged over that 20 years. But they're still vibrant, they're still committed, they will still sing, but they will they sing the right songs for them. Sing songs that they can identify with. I'm sure they enjoy, they will enjoy Richard Smallwood. I don't think Ty Trippett is in their field of appreciation simply because they they cannot identify with the music. It's just not in their circle of experience. So I'm very judicious as to what I select. As far as the heritage, the, the richness of our musical traditions, the tradition of African American music has a foundation in suffering and pain. There were things that we could not say, but we could sing them. Just the idea of being denied basic human rights. My parents were very good in shielding us. I did not understand, you know, like I said, my social life was in my African-American church. So, so much of what had been experienced before, I did not see. But I was in that era with Martin Luther King. My mother participated in the March on Washington. She sat very close to the stairs. She could tell you, you know, and I, I, every day I'd see the pictures of that event. I'm looking for her in the crowd because I know she was there. I was living when he was assassinated. I was living through the busing era and I could not understand how is it that people just don't want their children to go to not school, but to that school. I could not understand it. I think I'm about the last of that generation that has a direct experience in that situation. Our music was paramount in undergirding our determination to stand. The church, the black church, had a major role in preparing and inspiring and praying and working with the civil rights movement. Any number of preachers in any city that I've been in, all of them had major input in the civil rights era, in that struggle for, uh, before any marches were even began, they were in church first. Our music, again, was what we wrapped ourselves up in and marched out with to the tune, to the beat of these songs. As we progressed even further, as time goes by, our songs are become the inspiration for many of the other musical genres that have come along, from the classical to the rhythm and blues and the jazz. That's, it, it started out in the church. Many of those singers started out in the church. Our beginning, our initiation was in the church, and we just branched out. We just lost Cicely Tyson. And a friend of mine showed me a video of the time when she was honored in the Kennedy Center 
honors and C.C. Winans sang Blessed Assurance. And it moves me even now to think of it. I've watched Cicely Tyson rejoice. I mean, spread her arms and clap her hands because they were singing a song that had real meaning to her experience. And then the camera panned over the audience and I saw Usher. And I know Usher had a beginning in the church and tears are running down his face. I said, okay, you can move beyond, but you don't get away. You, you, the roots are always there. And I have learned over these 20 years and more that to, to, if I need to say something from my heart, I say it from a hymn. If I want to, I find myself rejoicing more in gospel and praying more in my hymns. Now, that doesn't necessarily say that one is not conducive to the other, but that, that's my experience. I will share one hymn with you uh, that, has, that I have lived with for the last, I want to say, eight years. Uh, we learned that my mother had dementia, and my father wasn't far behind. My mother passed in uh, 2017, and we just buried my father in September of last year. During this time, at one particular year, my pastor had decided that for the year, our theme was the grace of God. And my aim is, okay, let's find the kind of hymns, the kind of songs that meet this, that coincide with his vision. And I went across quite a few. Some of them I knew, but one in particular I didn't know. And this was a time when I'm trying to find a way to pay for the home that my parents are in. I'm dealing with the Veterans Administration and trying to get all of that paperwork in order. I'm trying to get all of their accounts in some semblance of order. And my back was literally to the wall. I think when I stepped away, you could see the imprint. I was just pushed so hard. But I distracted myself by trying to find this hymn. And in the new National Baptist hymnal, the 21st century version, number 164, is the hymn called, He Giveth More Grace. I listened to that hymn. I read the hymn first, and then I went online and I listened to it. And there aren't very many times when I, I just completely lose it, even at home. You know, ain't nobody going to see me at home, but not very many times. Well, I lost it then. When I came to myself, I was literally in the floor. His love has no limit. His grace has no measure. His power has no boundary known unto men. But out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and he giveth and he giveth again. That hymn carried me for a long time. And my choir members know, I talk about it all the time. There isn't another song on this earth that gave me, that could give me what I needed at that time. And it's not to say that's not there. There's all kinds of music that can meet, but that was my experience. And when I gave it to my church to sing, when I taught it to the congregation, I taught it to the choir, it resonated with them. Not just because the theme was the grace of God for that year, but because people were able to identify in their own experiences something that, that you just don't hear very often. How often does God refill us and refill us and refill us and then what refills us again? It resonated. I like to think that it's a favorite of our congregation. I know it's mine. It doesn't have to be there. It's just mine. It's my favorite of all time. Our hymns are, we have hymns written by African-Americans that speak to the actual life that we are living. 
Lucy Campbell, precious Lord, take my hand. Tommy Dorsey. There you go. (laughs) Those are the things that speak literally to what we have come through. And worship across the board has to be complete. That can't be the kind of praise that some of us would like to think is indicative of the church without having gone through some experience, some storm, some, some difficulty. Then you have reason to praise. I use the example of our communion services. And whenever I'm working with other musicians, I always admonish them to make sure that your congregation understands the magnitude of the sacrifice that Christ has made, that God made in giving us his son and how horrible was his suffering on our behalf. They have to acknowledge that before they can get to the celebration. Once you acknowledge the fact that this was done with you in mind, then you have reason to celebrate and to praise. And how much more does your praise mean when you've come through the suffering first to acknowledge and understand that this was done on my behalf, it did not have to be done. He was compelled to consider us by his love for us. This was the son of God. I always go back to that one song. He could have called thousands of angels to remove him, to, to, to take him out of that situation, but he didn't. And even in his suffering, he thought of us. Lark, your discussion of the pain and suffering in the traditions of African-American music have me thinking about the pain and suffering that a lot of our listeners have been going through, even recently, even in this past year or so, uh, some of which has stemmed from racial injustice, some of which has had to do with the COVID epidemic, some of which has had to do with all the political turmoil in our society these days. Sadly, we're still living through a lot of pain and suffering. And we always like to end our interviews with folks on the podcast by asking them what the Lord is doing in their lives right now. So if I may, uh, let me ask you this concluding question. Uh, Has the Lord been teaching you anything through the turmoil of recent months that's new or special? What's he saying to you? What's he doing in your life these days that might be helpful for our listeners to hear? He's teaching me to wait. I don't understand, and I've said it. I've, I've said it before. I don't understand the level of disdain and outright hatred that has surfaced in these last few years. I, I, I don't understand it. The pandemic that we're in right now, it is a serious situation, and lives have been lost needlessly. So. I'm thinking constantly, God, you you can take care of this. I know you have something in mind for all of us. And immediately the thought comes to me, my ways are not his ways. My understanding of what he has is so far beneath, it's barely microscopic in his sight. We're just so small in his overall plan. And I have learned through the experience with taking care of my parents, just, just wait. He has this in hand. I am constantly reminding myself that all spirits, he has this world, not just here in Philadelphia, or I'm in Wilmington at the moment, or you just there in Birmingham, or just this country, or 
just this hemisphere. He's got this entire world, and the world encompasses more than just what we see, just this globe. There are people on every hand and in every corner of this world who are suffering through this pandemic, but it's not like suffering hasn't been before. And he has to have some meaning. I wish I could just sit down and say, God, just just show me. I'll sleep better if you show me what could happen. Where are we? What's in store? Says, well, he neither sleeps nor slumbers. So why am I up all hours of the night worrying? I've got to be able to wait. It's going to come in his time. It's going to come by his way. And I accept the fact that I may not see it. I don't know how long it's going to take to get through this pandemic. I pray this is a year we get back to the sanctuary. And even now in thinking about it, I, I wonder just what is our worship going to look like? Because we can't do as we used to do. What is it going to I, I just have to wait. Okay, how long is it? going to be before I can even consider getting this vaccine. Uh, just, just just wait. Wow, will my church be able to afford me? Will be able to just just wait. Just wait. He's got this in hand. Go to bed. Go to sleep. If I say I believe him, then I I, I have to actually believe him. A hard lesson to learn, but one that all of us need to take to heart. You have been listening to Dr. Lark Ball. She is the Director of Music Ministry at the White Rock Baptist Church in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. She is a two-time alumna of Beeson Divinity School, and we are grateful for her gift of time uh, with us this afternoon. Uh, thank you very much, Dr. Ball, for being with it us. It has been my pleasure. It has been my pleasure. Thank you. Thanks to all of you, dear listeners, for tuning in. We're praying for you. Please continue to pray for us, and goodbye for now. listening to the Beeson Podcast. Our theme music is written and performed by Advent Birmingham of the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama. Our engineer is Rob Willis. Our announcer is Mike Pascarello. Our co-hosts are Doug Sweeney and myself, Kristen Padilla. Please subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at beesondivinity.com slash podcast or on iTunes. Thank you.